here this afternoon. I want to start off by asking you a question that I know you know the answer to. That question is simply this. If someone is crying, if someone is crying, are they happy or are they sad? If someone is crying, are they happy or are they sad? I hope you answer that question by saying, well, of course, they're sad. They're sad. They're crying. They must be sad. But if that is the case here this afternoon, then let me ask you a second question. Why does Jesus say in verse 4 here in our text that blessed or happy are those who mourn? Why does Jesus say happy are those who mourn? How can you be happy if you are crying, if you are mourning? Well, this is in fact the question that Christ raises and then answers in the second beatitude on the Sermon on the Mount. And like all the other beatitudes, This second beatitude is really a beautiful, succinct, and yet heart-searching gospel declaration from the mouth of Jesus Christ. Blessed are they that mourn, says Christ, for they shall be comforted. Now as we begin to unpack this beatitude this afternoon, we need to take a moment and remind ourselves about the context in which this sermon of the Lord Jesus Christ took place. Our text tells us and also demonstrates to us throughout the sermon that Jesus was seated on one of those gentle rolling hills in Galilee likely overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And around them, evidently, were fields of grass and blooming flowers with birds chirping and flying through the sky. And as our Lord Jesus sat upon that mountainside, upon that hillside, with his disciples spread out in front of him, And beyond those disciples, also the multitudes gathered around them. He could see all things around him. Not just the faces of the people in front of him. Not just the faces of the multitude behind him. But also the very hearts of those he was speaking to. And he knew everything in his divine nature about everyone. And one of the things that he would have most certainly known is that there were many in that group in front of him who were mourning. Many who were struggling 
because of sickness, perhaps, or sin, or troubles in their lives. And as the Lord Jesus Christ now is no longer upon this mount in Galilee, but upon the heavenly Mount Zion, looking, as it were, over this world, he sees also into the hearts of everyone in this world. Children, he sees also into your hearts. And he knows that there are weeping people. There are mourning people, even here this afternoon. The world in which we live is a world of mourning, a world of sorrow, a world of sadness. In fact, if we lift up our eyes and we look beyond these church walls, and we look even to the city of Monarch, or to the city of Lethbridge, or, or the province of Alberta, or this nation of Canada, we will realize very quickly that this country is a country of mourning, a country full of trouble due to sin. And if we go beyond our country and we go all across this world, we see that this world is also a world of mourning. We know for a fact that in third world countries there are people even this very minute who are mourning, weeping over a lack of things that we simply take for granted. Mourning over good food. Mourning over a lack of good water. Mourning because the rich are oppressing the poor. Mourning perhaps because they have professed the name of Christ but are now being persecuted for righteousness' sake. And so this whole world is a world of mourning, a world of trouble. Solomon even says it in Ecclesiastes, that man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upwards. And so in one sense, given sin, we can look at ourselves here this morning and say that we are born into this world to mourn. We are born into this world to mourn. And yet we have here in this text today a strange paradox coming from the mouth of Christ. Blessed are those who mourn, he says. Happy are the weepers. Joyful are the ones who have tears streaming down their cheeks. Happy are the ones with troubled hearts. Happy are the ones with heavy hearts. Happy are those whose lives feel like they are covered with the cloud. Blessed, happy are those who mourn. And we hear it and we say, this is strange. This is impossible. How can we be blessed? How can we be happy if we're mourning? Now, if you went out to someone who was living in the world, who didn't believe in God, who was living according to the values of the world, and you said to them, who are the blessed ones? Who are the happy ones? What do you think they would say? Well, I think our culture and those who live within it would answer quite quickly that the blessed ones, the happy ones, are those who have everything they want in life. Those who are satisfied, the ones with smiles on their faces, 
due to their life circumstances. Blessed are these people. Not blessed are those who mourn. That makes no sense according to the world's standards. In fact, if we were to try to assess and put together something of a beatitudes for the world, we would say they go something like this. Blessed are the wealthy. Blessed are those with good salaries. Blessed are those who have good chances of advancement at work. Blessed are those who have good retirement plans or good health plans and so on and so forth. Blessed are the wealthy. Or blessed are the popular. Blessed are the popular, those who are well-liked by others. Those who are relationally skillful. The well-known people in the world. The people that other people look at and say, I want to be friends with them. I want to be like them. Blessed are those who get the most views or likes in their social media feed. Blessed are the popular. Or, blessed are the entertained. Blessed are the entertained. Those who can enjoy the best or the most sensational forms of media. Those who have access to the best food and the best drink. Those who can amuse themselves the moment any boredom comes into their mind. Blessed are the entertained. Or blessed are the promiscuous. Those who have no inhibitions in regards to sensual pleasures. Blessed are those who can live as if they have no commitments in this life. Blessed are those who live as if they are forever young. Blessed are those who are promiscuous. Or blessed are the attractive, those who are handsome, those who are beautiful, those whom others look at and say, I wish I could look like them. I wish I could be like them. Those whom the world smiles upon. Blessed are the attractive. And the list could go on, couldn't it? On and on and on. But the sum of those beatitudes, the sum of the world's beatitudes, the principle that lies behind the world's beatitudes is simply this. Blessed or happy are those who are satisfied here below. Blessed are those who have everything they need here in this life. That is the beatitude of the world. But Jesus Christ, in all his divine authority, the one who made each of us sitting here this afternoon, who knows how we work, who knows what makes people happy, who knows what makes people truly joyful and blessed, looks at us and he says, no. Blessed are they who mourn. Blessed are they who mourn. And what a slap in the face this is. What a slap in the face this is to the way our world operates, to the systems which go on in the world. And perhaps this is even a slap in the face, a rebuke to our churches. A rebuke to the churches of North America at large. Why do I say that? Well, sometimes to our own grief, we come to church on Sunday. And we act... And we even declare that we wish to be blessed by the Lord Jesus Christ. We wish to receive his happiness. 
But then the moment Monday morning comes around, all the way through to Saturday evening, we live by the principles of the world. We live as if we would be blessed according to the world's beatitudes. And these things ought not to be. These things ought not to be. We should not live one way Sunday and then one other way the rest of the week. If we do this, and some of us know this from experience, the spiritual temperature of our souls will be lukewarm at best. So Christ, in his abundant compassion, his remarkable gentleness comes to us also here this afternoon. And he declares with no ambiguity, no uncertainty, that blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are they that mourn. Now the question, of course, that I hope you are asking and that we have really been circling around this whole afternoon is this. What does Christ mean when he says, blessed are they that mourn? Children, what is he saying? Is he saying, blessed are the grumpy? Blessed are the irritable? Blessed are the pessimists of this world? Or maybe blessed are the emotional? Blessed are those who feel things more strongly in life due to their temperament? What is Christ saying here when he says, blessed are they that mourn? Well, we need to realize that Christ is not speaking in our categories here this afternoon. Here Christ is really looking back to the Old Testament. He, he draws his idea of mourning from the Old Testament scriptures. And so if we want to understand what he says in this beatitude, we need to understand what mourning is in the Old Testament scriptures. And if you open your Bibles and you want to page back to the very beginning of weeping, the very beginning of mourning, the very beginning of sorrow, we would have to go all the way back in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. There we read, don't we have a beautiful paradise full of every comfort, every possible pleasure, every good thing, full even of God himself. But then we read also of the entrance of sin and how this place of joy, this place of happiness was radically changed into a place of the deepest mourning. And God solidifies this reality because of sin when he lays out the curses towards Eve and towards Adam in that garden. To Eve, he says in Genesis 3, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And to Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. And so we see right from the get-go, right from the beginning, that sorrow, grief, Mourning is an effect of sin. Mourning comes from sin. 
To mourn, to sorrow, to, to weep tears is not actually a natural thing. It's not natural to our humanity. It is actually the ineffect of sin. We were not created to cry. But then this raises the question, doesn't it? If sorrow comes from sin, then how can it be a good thing to sorrow? If sorrow is an effect of sin, then how can it be a blessed thing to sorrow, to mourn? Well, the answer rises really as we work our way through the Old Testament scriptures. At first in the Old Testament, it's somewhat scattered, but then as we get closer and closer to the end of the Old Testament, it becomes more and more clear why this mourning is a blessed thing. In the book of Moses, we find Abraham mourning over the effect of sin, the death of his wife Sarah. We find Rebekah grieving over Esau's pagan wives. We find the Israelites crying out in anguish over the bondage of Egypt. And if we move to the wisdom books, we find Job as he's full of bitterness of soul at these hard providences that God has placed in his life. And he weeps. Or David, grieved over his enemies, grieved over trouble in the nation, grieved over problems in his own family. Or Asaph, mourning over the perplexities of life. Why have I been righteous if righteousness only seems to end in problems, whereas the wicked seem to prosper? And he mourns as well. And then we come to the prophets and we find Jeremiah and Isaiah and, and really the vast majority of the prophets filled with weeping in a constant state of trouble over the sin of God's people and over their own sin and over the consequences of that sin in their nation. Jeremiah even says this. He says, oh, that my head were waters and mine eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. And as you work your way, through the minor prophets and the books of history and you get closer and closer to the end of the Old Testament, there's something, if you will, of a crescendo of mourning. The mourning, the weeping becomes louder from the people of God. They were mourning over the fact that their nation was ignoring God's prophets, mourning over their own national disobedience against God, mourning over their own personal sin, Mourning over the fact that judgment was falling upon the land. Mourning over the land that they would sow their seed in the soil, but nothing would come up. Mourning over the fact that the enemies of God held the upper hand in their life. And mourning, most of all, for the people of God. Because the promised Redeemer, the promised Messiah, that had been promised all the way back in Genesis 3, at the very beginning of mourning, had still not come. And they waited, and they waited, and they waited. And still, the son of David, the seed of Abraham, had not come. And so they became a people of mourning, a people of weeping, a people of crying. And all these things lead us really to an inescapable conclusion concerning this statement of Christ here on the Sermon of the Mount. When he says, blessed are they that mourn, 
He is saying, blessed are those who mourn over sin. Blessed are those who mourn a godly sorrow, a repentant sorrow. Blessed are those who look at their sins and at their family's sins and at their church's sins and at their nation's sins and at the world's sins and who look at the effects of those sins and death and sickness and destruction and war and who weep over that sin. Those who see that they have sinned not just against others but against a good and a compassionate Father in heaven. That is what Christ is speaking of when he says, blessed are they that mourn. And on the other hand, on the other hand, Christ is not speaking here. He is not speaking here of those who have a worldly sorrow, as Paul puts it. He's not speaking of those, if I can put it to you this way, who shed selfish and self-centered tears over their own lives. Or of those who feel so full of grief, but get worked up and bitter towards God. Or of those who mourn because they cannot handle the people in their lives. Or they cannot handle the circumstances God has sovereignly put in their lives. And who get angry at them. That is not the kind of mourning that Christ is speaking of here. That kind of mourning comes from a proud spirit. Not from a poor spirit. And yet... If we are honest with ourselves here this afternoon, we know, don't we, that if we look at ourselves in the mirror and we see who we truly are, that we are actually incredibly inconsistent people in regards to this mourning. Sometimes we do mourn if we are in Christ with a godly sorrow. We mourn over our sins. We hate what it does to others. We hate what it has done to God in Jesus Christ. But then the very next moment, we may be weeping tears of self-pity, tears of bitterness. And this brings grief. This brings grief to the heart of one who is a true Christian. In fact, a true Christian not only mourns over sin, but he then proceeds to mourn over the inconsistency in his mourning over sin. He mourns over the lack of quality in his mourning over sin. His lack of sincerity in his mourning over sin. The true Christian says with Paul, O wretched man, O miserable man, O grief-filled man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? That is what the true Christian says when he comes face to face with his own mourning over sin. But when we see this reality in our hearts, when we mourn over sin, but we see how 
poor our mourning over sin actually is. This pushes us, doesn't it? Or or it pulls us, it draws us to not just read the first part of Christ's beatitude. Blessed are they that mourn. But to read also the second part. Blessed are they that mourn. Why? For they shall be comforted. They shall be comforted. Blessed are they who mourn. For they shall be comforted. And what words of grace. What words of kindness. What words of hope. Gospel hope. From the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see as he sat there on that hill in Galilee as we began the sermon, he knew all things about the people in front of him. He knew about their mourning over sin or their mourning over the effects of sin. He knew about their inconsistencies. He knew about their sins. And yet he doesn't give them a sharp rebuke here. He doesn't criticize them or condemn them. He looks at them and he says, Blessed are you who mourn over your sin because you will be comforted. And these words alone, this simple beatitude, these simple few short words are the word of God. And that means that we can take them and believe them and consider it to be a sure and a settled thing that those who mourn over sin today those who mourn over sin and its consequences today with a godly sorrow will indeed one day be comforted in Christ. There will be an end of mourning in this world. There will be an end of tears in this world. There will be an end of sin's consequences in this world. And that end, that end will not be in the comforts of this world. Those pass away. The end of our comfort will be in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You see, as Christ sat there on that hillside and he spoke those words out to the multitudes, those words not only went out to the multitudes, but they also pointed back to himself, didn't they? They not only revealed the mourning or the lack thereof in the multitudes on that hill, but they also pointed those people back to himself, even as he sat there on that hill. He not only spoke the word of God, but he was the word of God. He not only promised comfort to those who mourned, but he was the comfort. For those who are mourning. And so we can say blessed are those who mourn over sin. Why? Because they will be comforted in Christ. And we know this, don't we, from really all the rest of Scripture. To give you just one example, consider the fact that Christ gave it as his explicit purpose when he came to earth to comfort those who mourn. Later on, perhaps this afternoon, you can go to Luke, the Gospel of Luke chapter 4, and you can read how Christ went into his hometown synagogue and how he opened to the book of Isaiah and he read there to the astonished crowd 
The fact that he had come to bring comfort to those who mourn. Christ was, in fact, the fulfillment of God's Old Testament command to comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. He was the comfort of God for any who would have him then. And Christ, in his comfort that he provides, provides truly an eternal comfort. A comfort that goes with us through every stage of life. A comfort that doesn't end when we grow old. A comfort that doesn't go away when sickness touches us or when accident comes into our hearts or when relationships fall apart. It's a comfort that goes through all the times of life. It's a comfort that even goes into the grave with us. And it's a comfort that lasts all the way into eternity and forevermore. This is the comfort that Christ gives to those who truly mourn over their sin. But this brings us to a question. A question that, if we know our Bibles, we've already been asking. And that is, how can the eternal Son of God, how can the holy God of all creation, the one who hates sin with a passion, How can he comfort sinners? How can he, as it were, receive into his arms of comfort those who are filled with sin and with selfishness and with even a hatred of God? How can God comfort sinners? Well, we know that he can do it, congregation. Because Jesus Christ was the fulfillment. He was the fulfillment of this beatitude. No one mourned over sin like Christ mourned over sin. No one groaned in his spirit over the consequences of sin like Christ groaned in his spirit. No one wept over unrepentant sinners like Christ wept over unrepentant sinners No one's soul was exceeding sorrowful even unto death, like Christ's soul was sorrowful unto death. No one cried out to God with an intense passion and trouble of heart more than Christ cried out to God upon the cross. No one bore our griefs and carried our sorrows like Christ carried and bore our sorrows. He was, says Isaiah, the man of sorrows the one who was acquainted with grief. And why did he do these things? Why did Christ become the man of sorrows? He did it that we might be comforted by him. That as our catechism speaks of, we might find our only comfort in life and in death in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the wonderful part about Christ is that not only did he experience these sufferings, not only did he mourn over sin and its consequences, but even as he did that, his eyes were looking upwards. Even as he experienced all these troubles here below, his eyes were looking upwards to what? To the joy that was set before him. 
And so Christ not only plunged, if you will, into the depths of sorrow, but he was also one day raised and has been raised to the height of joy. No one sorrowed like Christ, it is true, but no one has been comforted as Christ has been comforted. No one mourned over sin, but no one now rejoices in heaven as Christ now rejoices. No one cried out to God in pain like Christ, but no one now sings out the praises of God in heaven as Jesus Christ sings out his praises. No one sowed in tears and then reaped in joy like Christ sowed in tears and has now reaped in joy. And so how can Christ give us this comfort? How can he wipe away the tears of miserable, God-hating sinners? He can do it because he's done it all already. He's paid the price for our sins. He's sorrowed our sorrows away. And he's now filled with the joy of the Lord ready to give that joy to any who would ask. And so he calls also to us here today in this church building to come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. And this really brings us, doesn't it, all the way back to the beginning question that I started this sermon with. Children, do you remember that question? I asked you if someone is crying, are they happy or are they sad? And you likely answered, they are sad. And then the question I asked you was, how can Christ then say, happy are those who are mourning? But here's the answer. Christ can say, blessed are they that mourn. Because those who truly mourn over their sins will be driven to find their comfort in Christ. Christ can say, happy are those who mourn. Because those who mourn over their sins will inevitably be driven to find their comfort in the Lord Jesus Christ. Children, it's much like what happens in your lives. If you are outside one day and you fall and you hurt yourself while playing, maybe you scrape your knee or you stub your toe or you fall off your bike, what do you do? Well, you run to your mom or you run to your dad and you run into their arms to be comforted for your hurt. And that is precisely the way the true Christian reacts when they truly mourn over sin. They are forced by their mourning over sin to run and to find comfort in the arms of their heavenly Father. Psalm 147 verse 3 teaches us that God is the one who heals the broken in heart. He is the one who binds up their wounds. And this is a great encouragement for us also here today. Not to spend even an hour more 
mourning over our sins without letting that drive us to find our comfort in Christ. You see, sometimes we think that God is pleased when we mourn over our sins, but we don't run to Christ. We think somehow God looks at that and is pleased with us. But we need to understand that when we mourn over our sins, but then do not run to Christ, this is not a glorifying thing to God. This is not an honoring thing to God. There's no salvation there. There's no help there. There's no strength to fight against sin there. There's nothing but a self-centered approach to sin. And so our text today really calls us to do what the prodigal son did when he came to himself in his sin. Children, you know what he did, don't you? He came to himself. He realized who he was and he ran to his father. He ran to his father. He said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But one of the most wonderful parts of that story is the fact that as he went towards his father, his father did not stand there with his arms folded. His father ran to him with open arms, ready to receive this repentant sinner ready to receive this one who mourned over sin and to embrace him, to fold him in his arms and say, Welcome home. Welcome home, sinner. Bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again He was lost and is found. Scripture actually teaches us that there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who turns to God than over ninety and nine who have no need of repentance. What an encouragement to run to Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes when I consider this, our human hearts in light of the clear teaching of Scripture, I realize more and more that we have done a great injustice to God. We have not only broken His law time and time again, but we have also severely and wrongly doubted the fullness and the magnificence of his compassion towards miserable sinners like us here today. We have looked at God and we've pretended that he is just like us, selfish, self-centered, lacking compassion. But this is not who God is. 
This is not who God is. God's arms in the gospel of Jesus Christ are wide open to sinners. God is not like us. He is merciful, compassionate, and slow to anger, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. I was thinking about this some time ago when I was working at home in a study that I have at home. Sometimes I will go down the stairs to my office and on my way downstairs, our little boy will come to me and he'll whisper a little request in my ear. He'll say, Daddy, just a crack. Daddy, just a crack. Daddy, leave the door open to your study. Just a crack. He didn't like it when I closed the door all the way. And you see, he's on to something. He's on to something. Because we also ought to hate it if the door to God is closed all the way. But in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the doors are flung wide open to receive sinners. We might even say the doors are torn off their hinges in the gospel of Jesus Christ, ready to receive any who come to him in repentance and faith. And what an encouragement then to come in repentance and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, nothing we do here today can sufficiently please God to make him open that door. We can't mourn over our sins enough for God to look at us and say, now you've mourned enough, I will let you in. We can't do it. Jesus Christ is the man of sorrows, not us, not you. Jesus Christ died on the cross. Not you. Jesus Christ was the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He bore the wrath of God for our sins. Not us. We can never come to God through anything we experience or anything that we do and say to God those words that Jesus Christ said on the cross. It is finished. We cannot say it. It cannot happen. Not now. Not in eternity. But Jesus Christ has said it. He has said it. He did hang there on the cross and say, It is finished. And so God the Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ, calls us even here today, to come with completely empty hands, completely empty hands, and fall before his face, mourning over sins, but clinging to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if I can put all this to you from an opposite perspective, I'm quite convinced that one of the greatest sorrows of hell 
One of the things, if you will, that causes the loudest cries of pain will be the realization by many that what they had been told in this life through the preaching of the gospel was indeed true. 100% true that God had been willing to receive them. That his arms were open to them in the gospel. But they would not come. Don't let that be you on the day of judgment. Don't let that be your voice crying out from hell in realization that you could have had it all, but you turned it down in unbelief. Don't let that be you. Instead, take God up on his offer. His sincere offer of the righteousness of Jesus Christ offered to you in the gospel. Take him up on it. Trust him completely with empty hands and you will find that he is indeed a faithful savior. And when you do that, when you do that, one of the great joys of the Christian life And many here, I am sure, if you ask them, will tell you this. Is that this beatitude becomes true in their lives, even today. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. All of the tears that we shed in this life become converted, if you will, into heavenly treasure. The Lord takes our sorrows and he lays up an eternal weight of glory in heaven for us. And it's not only the fact that we know that that treasure is waiting for us that gives us joy, but the fact that one day, after this short life is over, we will hear the words of God spoken in our ears. These words in Revelation 21, that behold The tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away. We will experience congregation, if we are in Christ, on that day, the fullness of this beatitude. Blessed, happy, eternally joyful are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Amen. Let's close in prayer.